Welcome back to the Athletes for Justice podcast. And I am so glad y'all are joining us for this episode. Y'all, this is low-key my favorite episode thus far. You're going to hear from Dr. Derwin Gray, a six-year NFL veteran, uh, but a beast, a dominant player. Uh, He played at Converse Justin in San Antonio. Anyone who knows football knows that's a football powerhouse. Scholarship at BYU. He's got statues there. Then he went on to be a, 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 a fourth-round pick in the NFL and dominated in his time there. We talk, He talks about picking off Steve Young and playing against other greats. And also, uh, to top it all off, he's a lead pastor of Transformation Church in Carolina. And so, man, tune in, listen, like, subscribe, share with your friends, and join us on this journey of justice together. So, Pastor Gray, tell me, we were talking about how you came to faith, um, and you, you you were sharing earlier a little bit about how it was year five in the NFL. But one thing I'm interested in is like, was that was somebody pouring into you from day one, or was it like new guy on the team? And then how did that work? Yeah, so. Um, um, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, on the west side, and um, it was rough, but you didn't know it was rough because that's all that you experienced. And so for me, um, the human heart is going to worship something. So football is what I worshipped. I went to a high school called Converse Judson. We've been we've been winning since the 80s. Right. And so we still balling. But um Football was was not just a, a game. It was it was my God. It gave me identity. It gave me uh, a mission. It gave me purpose. And so all state state championship got a football scholarship to BYU, met my dream girl my freshman year. We've been to get together ever since May 23rd of this year. We'll celebrate 29 years. BYU All-American, BYU legend. There's banners of me at the stadium, which the older you you get, that's dope. That's so dope. Uh, And then I got drafted by the Colts, right? In 1993, I was the 92nd pick of the 1993 NFL draft. And in my mindset, that was the pinnacle of worship. Like I thought all that I wanted to be fixed, my family being fixed, me being fixed. I thought that was it. And the first year was terrible. Uh, I had teammates, uh, black teammates who were racist because my wife was white, which was like, wait, what, what? I wasn't playing. Have you ever, I just, I'm going to stop you right there. Have you, yeah. had you ever experienced that before? Not to that degree, because usually I was, I was the alpha dog. And if someone had an issue, they weren't going to say nothing. But being a rookie, it was just like, wait, did he just say that? wait, are we sitting around this table and no one's talking to us? Mm. So it was really weird. And plus, generationally, as a rookie at that time, the Colts were an older team. Like, I'm 21, and there's dudes like 36 on the team, 34 on the team. And, and it was it was just – it was a bad culture. So anyway, all those guys uh, left. I ended up becoming friends with many of them over the years. But – that first year was such a letdown. Year two, <clears throat> I'm starting. I'm balling. First NFL game. I lead the team in tackles. I mean, how many people can say that? Like, first NFL game, I led the team in tackles. Next week, we played Tampa Bay. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I was on ESPN, 
getting like flame, man. Have you ever seen a steak in 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 like an iron skillet? Yes. The butter's been just that was me. Was, but not the just, not top ten. No, I was being. I was like, how did this happen in one week? And so I lost my confidence. Now, third year, I'm team captain. I'm balling. I'm I'm p- picking off Steve Young. I'm I'm doing all these things. But at the end of that third year, it was like. There's got to be more. So morally, I knew I had deficiencies. I had insecurities. Couldn't love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. Couldn't forgive my dad or other folks in my family for the way that I perceived that they hurt me. But God in his grace, I had a teammate. His name was Steve Grant. His nickname was the Naked Preacher because every day after practice, he'd take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist, and he'd get his Bible. You walk around the locker room saying, do you know Jesus? Not coming from a church background. I'm like, bro, do you know you half naked? This is just weird. (laughs) So I asked the vets on the team. I'm like, yo, what's up with this dude walking around half naked with a Bible? They were like, don't pay any attention to him. That's the naked preacher. And so over a five year period, I tried to avoid him and we built a relationship. But here was the key for me, though is I watched the way he interacted. Like people on the team would make fun of him, but when they were in trouble, they were at his locker. He was faithful to his wife. He he talked about parenting. He talked about being a husband. Um, also, we were playing the Buffalo Bills. Now, people think the tempo is like this new thing. Well, the Buffalo Bills ran tempo in the late 80s to early 90s. That's how they got to four straight Super Bowls. So anyway, they're running tempo against us, and we're tired. And he had to call the defense. Dude lifted up his his helmet. This, this is the, na- the naked preacher. Does. The naked preacher okay. lifted up his helmet, threw up, called the defense, then made the tackle. And so as a football player, I'm like, so I thought Christians were like soft and weird. Like this is, this is, this is a dude. So over a five year period, man, um, he, he, he embodied the gospel. He shared the gospel. Uh, He baptized me on a, on an away trip when we were playing the Oakland Raiders. So me, him, and a dude named Eugene Daniels, an old school vet, and people that were at the hotel watched me be baptized. Um, so August 2nd, 1997, is that moment when I realized, like, man, in Jesus is everything that I've ever could have wanted, forgiveness, grace, mercy, a new life. And so, man, that's, that's how I came to faith. And, and so now that I look back, like the technical terms is Steve understood that he was a missionary. And this is, that's, that's my cat, bro. He's, he's like a <laughs> 20 pound lion. Um, um, Steve understood that he was a missionary, but it, but it, it wasn't this awkward thing. It was the overflow out of his love for Christ that moved him to love us. So what happened at that moment? You said in August of 1997, you said your love for God or better yet, God's love for you became the primary thing. Yeah. Did you just say, all right, I'm going to retire and move on? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was, is we were playing the Cincinnati Bengals. It was August 1st. And uh, I stubbed my toe trying to tackle (laughs) Corey Dillon. And I remember walking off the field limping, going, God's trying to tell me something. And the Lord had been working 
showing me all the deficiencies of the things that I thought would give me life. And on August 2nd, we're in training camp and um, I was leaving lunch. And as I was walking to my dorm room, I just I just felt this chasm in my soul like I'd never felt before. And that's the best way I can describe it. So I got back to my dorm room and I called my wife on the phone. And I said, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And it was just silence because my my wife was a uh, she, she she was she didn't have no faith background either. And so she had come to faith through a what woman at work about six months before me. And so it was just silent. And then I just start crying and just, she just start crying because it was at that moment when I realized that for the first time in my life, someone loved me independent of my performance and, and God in his providence, God in his omniscience knows how to reach us. Right. And, and so as a athlete, as a former NFL player, our whole life is built on performance. Like you have to perform to start in middle school. Like you got to perform to start in high school and then to get scholarships. I mean, you know, it's your weight, your height. And then when you get to the league, I mean, they're measuring how big your hands are, how long your arms are. They're, they're scrupulously looking at your game film. And then when you get to the NFL, getting to the NFL, that's easier than staying in the NFL. Yeah. It's all performance, it's study and film. And so the best way that I could see it is for the first time, somebody studied my game film. And in the film review, they looked at me and said, um, your play is not good enough, but mine is. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna replace my game film with yours. And so what Jesus did for 33 years, he lived a sinless life, obeying every one of God's 10 commandments perpetually and perfectly so that his game film would be our game film. That his game film would be my game film. And then when he got on the cross for all of our missed tackles of life, for all of our blown coverages of life, for all of our missed assignments in life, which is called sin on the cross, Jesus paid for but then three days later, when he rose from the dead, he said, now the life that I live, I'm going to live inside of you and teach you to live it. And it's not something you have to achieve. It's a gift that you can believe in. And I begin to live in and through you and make you a part of a family to make you a part of a team. And like that just that just made sense to me. And I fell in love with, wow, somebody loves me independent of my film but now they can really teach me how to live life. But, but then with that, how do we use our gifts? So you say, okay, God loves me and I'm, I feel like I'm free, but then it's like we have these gifts and so we see problems, we want to solve them. We see issues, we want to do something. How do we do that? Because I think a lot of people are looking, even, even if as, as, I, as I'm listening, that initial story, the shock of coming into an NFL locker room with your wife and, she, and you're a black man, she's a white woman, and then your teammates Black teammates are, are, are upset at you, throwing out racist remarks at you and your wife. Like, what do you do with, with those issues? Yeah. Well, then, then I, you know, then I just chose not to be around them because I didn't have the mind of Christ. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have the spirit of Christ in order to understand. But, but here's the great thing about our gracious God. Um, 
is that he does not waste an experience. And so the pain of the past gives us purpose now. So, so let me go back to your initial question, right? And I want to put it in these terms, is that preparation must meet opportunity. Preparation must meet opportunity. Um, I would not ask a freshman to go play for Alabama if he's in high school, right? That, that's, that's, just, that's just not a good thing. And so what the Lord does is he puts gifts inside of us, but there's, but there's seasons of preparation, right? So King David was anointed king by Samuel as a teenager, but it wasn't until nearly 15 years later that he actually became king. What was he doing before he became king? He was shoveling uh, sheep crap. He was following around dumb sheep. He was protecting them. He was fighting lions and he was fighting bears. And what we do as Americans and what we do as Christians is we dismiss the little things. But what we don't realize is the little things lead to the big things. And, you know, as a football player, you can complete what I'm about, 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 about to say. This is the first time we've ever talked in person, but you're going to complete what I'm about to say. Um, details what? Details matter. There you go. Like details matter. That that's the key to being a successful NFL player. There's so once you get to that level, everybody's talented, right? Everybody's talented. But it's those who adhere to the details. Well, the little details of life are not wasted. Those are preparation. So as as a 49 year old man who's been walking with the Lord now for two decades, um, I, I have a doctorate. I write books. I wasn't ready to do those things at first, but the desire, right? So even as a, um, uh, um, even as a early believer, right? So, so I didn't plan on being a speaker. I didn't plan on being a pastor. I thought I was going to sell mutual funds or become a coach, right? Um, I grew up as a compulsive stutterer. So speaking was not something that I ever imagined doing, but after I came to faith, I got invited to speak at a youth event. And I argued, I cried with God saying, God, why would you send me to go and speak? Um, you know, I don't talk good. And he goes, I know that's why I'm having you to do it, because that way you'll never boast in your strength, but in mine. And he's like, if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk. Now, I didn't hear audible, but that's what I sensed. And so we went. I had note cards falling out of my pocket. I was crying and snotting and I was like, do y'all want what happened to me to happen to you? And a bunch of kids came to faith. And, and then I started getting in, in invitations to speak. And so my wife has the gift of administration. She didn't know, know that. She just organized it. And I went and spoke. And then about four or five years of traveling around the country, both of us said, why is it that when we were lost, when we didn't know Christ, we was up in the club, dropping it like it's hot. And it was diverse. But you go into Jesus's club and it's segregated. Why is it that heathens have the diversity of Revelation 5-9, every nation, tribe, and tongue, but Jesus's church is not only segregated, but it's intentionally segregated. Now, but you can't really talk about the intentionality of it. We, 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 we say all people are welcome, but the cultural cues reflect 
a particular ethnic group. Now, some people go, yeah, there, there shouldn't be a white church or a black church. Understand this, 90% of black denominations started in America because they could not worship with the white church. The first historic black denomination, African Methodist Episcopal Church, started because Mr. Allen could not worship in the Methodist church the way he wanted to. He didn't want to be in the slave quarters in the back, which the Bible in James talks very clearly about doing those types of things. And so up in the front row, hands clasped, he was praying, and the white leaders of the church grabbed him and threw him out, and that was the start of the first historical Black denomination. So 90% of denominations that are Black it was started because of white supremacy, because of racism and sin. Now, I know what people are going to say. Well, Derwin, let's don't talk about the past. So let me pause here and just say, I get your sentiment, but if you go to the doctor and you get diagnosed with cancer and the doctor says, have you smoked cigarettes? And you go, I don't want to talk about the past. Well, he's trying to get a diagnosis of how you got to where you are. So for us, and specifically for my white Christian brothers and sisters, it's important to know that your identity is not tied into the success of America, that we can critically look back and go, here were issues, here were problems. Yes, our country's a great problem, but so are other countries around the world. Um, here are the problems. Here's how we got to where, where, where we are. Here's how we can move forward as brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and this is really important, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and specifically to our white brothers and sisters in Christ, your allegiance to your sisters and brothers in Christ is greater than your allegiance to America. Mm -hmm. And if we don't understand that, that is called nationalism, and that is an idol that needs to be toppled and broken, right? So in, in saying those things, when my wife and I saw that, we began preparedness. And my wife threw the javelin on the on the track team. So by the way, don't come after her man because you might get harpooned. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so that's where we began to study. That's where we began to prepare. So in our study, in our preparedness, in our preparation is actuality. And so the, the idea of justice and as athletes with justice, the word justice simply, if you reduce it, mean, means this, loving your neighbors, you love yourself. When Jesus said, love God and love your neighbors, you love your, yourself. Loving your neighbors, you love, love yourself is justice. Justice is what love looks like in the public square. Justice mean, means, means this. If there is someone being treated unjustly because of not only individual actions, but systemic and structural actions, love calls me to change it. But here's the problem, though, Sam. And I'm speaking as a Christian is oftentimes we as American Christians, we don't care about justice if it doesn't affect people who look like us. Hmm. And it's time for Christians to, to say, no, all of us are the us, because the Bible says that we are the body of Christ. Jesus is the body, the black, white, Asian, Jew, Latino, young, old, poor, rich, male, female are located in. So if I have a, you know, I have a broken navicular in my wrist, right? And at times it hurts. 
Well, when it hurts, my whole body hurts. What we've done is we've racialized being in the church. And it's like, well, that's not our problem. Why, why, why is Kaepernick protesting? He should just be happy. He's a millionaire. <laughs> well, those who don't have a voice have those who do have a voice to speak up for them. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came and spoke up for us because we were in need, right? And so whether people agree with Kaepernick or not, my problem was this, did you even take time to understand or care about why he was doing what he was doing, which he's been vindicated by the NFL now? So, so, so this is, this is great, by the way. Oh man, I got so many questions. Um, I think my first question would be, what, should the response be, how do we, so it's, it's, it's been evident there's a problem, right? Loving, right? Justice is loving your neighbor as yourself. And for whatever reason, we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's the problem. What is the solution? How do we get there? Instead of having these divided spaces, divided churches, how do we get to this place of justice? Yeah. So, um, this is a, a large conversation. And so where I focus as a pastor, as a theologian, this is my impetus is if Christians do not embody Jesus-centered love, ethnic unity, then there's no hope for those who don't know Christ. So I'm going to speak specifically as a pastor because um, if Jesus's people can get it, then it can become a training manual or better yet, a window in which the world can look through to see what it could be like. The first thing is this, like, like you said it, right? Love, like, like it starts with love. But when I talk about love, I am talking about a good Samaritan kind of love, right? And the good Samaritan story is for 700 years, Samaritan and Jews had a 700-year ethnic feud. Jews did not con consider Samaritans Jews because they were Gentiles and Jews in one body. They were half-breeds. And so there was a 700-year feud, and Jesus chooses to use a story of an outsider, an enemy to be the hero of a man who had been bloodied, who had been beaten. Two of the Jewish men did not help the Jewish man, but the good Samaritan does. And, the, and love is willing to count the cost. So, so what did the good Samaritan do? He poured wine on the wounds. That's to disinfect the areas. He poured olive oil to keep the wounds soft. He bandaged them. He put him on his own animal and he took him to an inn and paid two weeks of wages. Yeah, wages, right? That cost you something. Love costs you something. Now, here's the other part, and I think I'm on biblical scholarship here, is imagine when that Samaritan man went back home and told the story. Hey, uh, I was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho and I came across a dude and I spent all this money and I helped him. His Samaritan friends would have said, what Samaritan was it? Do we know him? And he would have said, no, it was a Jew. And they would have called him a, a Jew lover. They, they, they might have fought him. How dare you help the enemy? But Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 44. But I tell you, bless those who persecute you and love your enemies. Loving your enemies may not 
keep them from hating you, but it'll keep you from hating them. I don't think we as the church have really dove deeply into what the love of God is. Now, what I will say is um, historically, the historic black church has been incredibly forgiving, incredibly merciful. When, when you think of the nine people who were killed by the white supremacists, I will not mention his name at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, which, by the way, Charleston was one of the ports that the first enslaved Africans came into. Think about the forgiveness that was mentioned there. Right. And we had people in America, predominantly white folks, who were upset about being asked to wear masks, that they would storm the, the, the Capitol in Michigan. And, and then we've seen with former President Trump, people with crosses. There, there, there was a Confederate flag in the U.S. Capitol. That has never happened. The Confederacy didn't want to be a part of America. The Confederacy wanted to keep human beings made in the image of God enslaved. My great, great, great grandfather, Moses Davis, fought for the Virginia Cavalry, the 4th Regiment, the colored regiment against the Confederacy. Why? So liberty and justice for all, right? And so what I'm talking about is a love that transcends political parties. I'm talking about a love that says, I follow the lamb, not the elephant or the donkey. The second thing is we've got to learn to listen. Like how many times can black people talk about uh, police brutality before it actually has to be eight minutes and 46 seconds? And one of the things, one of the blessings of COVID, and I, I know it's been hard, is those eight minutes and 46 seconds that that officer had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck you couldn't unwatch that. Things had slowed down that you couldn't dismiss that. And if someone brazenly does that in public, so, so you have to listen. And that's just only one facet, right? But, but for Black people, policing has a historical narrative all the way back to slave plantations, all the way back to dogs being let loose on them, on them because they just wanted to vote. Like there's a larger narrative. Do I love policemen? Of course, we support them. We, we help them, but you have to learn how to listen, right? You have to learn to listen to prison reform, uh, redlining, housing discrimination, banking discrimination, and, and then discrimination even, even within the church. You know, uh, I'm in the process of writing a new book and I'm researching Dr. Tony Evans. And in 1969, that's not that long ago, a church in Atlanta wouldn't let him join their staff because the congregation would not accept it. He was, he was told that he would never have a powerful radio ministry because white listeners would not want to hear it. Like this isn't that long ago in those tentacles. So we have to learn to listen. Um, and not only do we do we love and we listen, but then comes a part of leverage. How do I then begin to leverage my life on behalf of others? You know, so 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 how do we say, you know what, we need borders to protect our country. That's true. But we don't need to separate kids from their parents and put them in cages now. To be objective and fair, President Obama 
was the one who put the kids and parents in cages together. So we need to acknowledge that. When we follow the lamb, we can be helpfully critical of both political parties because both political parties are going to be at odds with the kingdom of God. And so what I would say is this, is racism, racial injustice, systemic injustice, it's not only individual, it is systemic. And so a lot of times, particularly with white brothers and sisters, they've been taught Western philosophy, even though they don't know it. And Western philosophy says everything is individualistic, but to deny systemic racism is to deny the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity says that everything is broken and in need of redemption, and that includes our systems. So if people who are imperfect create systems, don't you think that could lead to uh, systems that have issues, right? And so it's important for us to be able to, to have critical thinking minds, but also loving hearts. When I say loving, that means I care about stuff that don't affect people that look like me. Hmm. Wow. I, um, first of all, I'm excited for your new book. So, so Dr. Gray has a book coming out, building a multi-ethnic church. Uh, it's already a number one bestseller in pre-order. So go ahead and pre-order that as you're listening, but it just seems like you've lived this. When we talk about justice, we talk about um, obviously the athletic world or people with influence or even the church world, you've lived it. If there's one thing you could share with uh, people listening, whether it's an experience or a dream or a desire or a pain point, pain point, what would it be? Well, it's, it's this, is that, you know, by way of illustration, we live in an Instagram world. You know, people, oh, I just woke up this morning, snap, and you like full makeup on, pictures have been filtered, pictures has been edited. Like we have to move beyond an Instagram world into a real world of um, leadership is this. I want people to become what I'm embodying. And so like, you know, from back in the day, like they're guys that, they talk about how they're going to play and their guys that play in their talk in their play talks about how they play. I remember my rookie year, first preseason game, 1993, we're getting ready to play the Seattle Seahawks. And me and another rookie were drafting the third and fourth round. We're both safeties. They were looking to us to come in and start. We're watching it. The film, we're like, oh, we're going to tear it up, man. We were talking about what we were going to do, and the veterans were quiet. Man, when I got in that game, a running back by the name of Reuben Mays, just research who, who he is, this dude popped free, and he was moving so fast. The linemen were so big. He, he popped free, and I got froze. And then when I went in pursuit of big old tight end, just Bam, hit me in the side of the head. Next thing I remember is I'm on the ground looking straight up at the old Seattle kingdom. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Let me get up out of this game. Hey, when we watched watched film the next day, it was silent. Him and I both, we were silent. And the veterans were like, "Uh, welcome to the NFL. Hmm. So my point is, Don't talk about it, 
be about it. But the way to be about it is to actually learn. And what I want to propose is this, is I believe Jesus talks about it. Like, like the stuff that Black Lives Matter movement has done, that's, that's good. The positive things are, are good. But I don't protest racial injustice because of Black Lives Matter. I protest racial injustice because Jesus said, love your neighbors, you love yourself. I protest injustice, not because Dr. King had a dream, but because Jesus, the King of Kings, had a dream. And his dream is every nation, tribe, and tongue is to worship him. So as a Christian, Jesus has an answer. And when I say Christian, throw out all of the baggage and get to the New Testament, and you see a Jewish Messiah who came to redeem the world. And redeeming the world is not simply, I'm putting you safely in my arms. It's, I am enlisting you. I am bringing you onto my team to show people what love looks like. Love is courageous. Love is sacrificial. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love says where there's a hurt, I wanna be healing. Love says where there's injustice, I wanna be justice. Love says I am light in darkness. That's that's what I want to be a part of. And uh, sadly, I think a lot of the American church has succumbed to some uh, uh, fantasy self-help coach stuff. And so I put a lot of what we're seeing in the United States of America at the doorstep of the church. God is going, people are, are going, God, where are you? And God is going, where are you? You are the body of Christ. I left you on earth to be my hands and feet, not a political organization, but to be the kingdom of God. Uh, let me say one other, one other thing. Man, I have never seen a bunch of more scared people than evangelical Christians. Hmm. It is the weirdest thing. Now, you might be a little bit too young for this, but when I first became a Christian, evangelicals were scared of Y2K. Do you do you know what Y2K yeah, yeah, yeah. is? Yeah, yeah. So they're all like, oh my goodness, everything's going to blow up and, and the clocks are going to roll back. And man, I had evangelical friends who were like storing up water and, and now they were getting ready to move to the mountains, okay? And then as horrible as 9-11 was like, oh, the world's going to end. And as a new Christian, I said, now, why is it that when stuff bad happened to America, all of a sudden the world's going to end? Like, do you, do you not know the persecution that's happening around the world? Oh, President Obama is going to is going to win. So, so like you. So like you're acting like any president is 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 God's person. Yeah, God raises up. But, but that doesn't mean God is ordained or deemed. And then it's like, oh, no, President Trump's not going to win. I mean, like of all people you're going to pick to be your representative, <laughs> bruh. <laughs> can you can you can you imagine if Michelle Obama was not oh my god if uh, Michelle Obama was not Ivy League educated mm. if Barack was not uh, Ivy League educated the, the 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 man is a great father great m mother faithful to his wife people of immense integrity and intellect now, I don't agree with all their policies. I don't agree with anybody's policies, but Jesus's. But can you imagine, can, can you imagine if Michelle Obama had once been a nude model hmm. or President Obama had been divorced three times, had paid off a porn stripper, 
lied about it in the midst of his presidency, had so many of his friends be involved. Uh, now, he did have some issues with Jeremiah Wright, and Jeremiah Wright, the pastor, had said some some horrible things, and he distanced himself. So I'm not let, letting him off the hook of, of that. But But my point is, the only place we need to lose ourselves is in the kingdom of God. And, and yes, does God offer grace to President Trump? Absolutely. His wife, yes. And my hope and prayer is that not only that they would that they would experience it and that it would be embodied through behavior, not just in words. And President Trump did some good things. Opportunity zones are good, good things. Um, you don't hear much about Al-Qaeda and, and all that stuff. Like he did some good things. President Trump gave more money to black historic colleges than anybody working with Tim Scott. President Trump did um, a prison reform at the hist of Jared Kushner's, whose mom was in a federal prison. So it's not as black and white. And we need, we need nuance. We need grace. But above all else, we need allegiance to the Lamb of God. Mm. Well, Dr. Derwin Gray, thank you so much for, uh, for everything, man. That was, that was phenomenal. Um, y'all check out his new book that's coming out, uh, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. Um, check out his best-selling book, Yes. The Good Life. That's already out. The Good Life is out. And I have two chapters where I basically talk about the Good Samaritan and peacemaking. So what I would say is get the good life because that's more of a popular level book. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, definitely. Yes. And we'll put it in the link. So anybody you're listening, just go down to the link. The Good Life. uh, Man, Pastor Gray, Dr. Gray, uh, NFL. Hard hit and say, I've been seeing the highlights on, on social media and obviously on YouTube. You, know, you I love how you just suddenly slid in there. You had picking off Steve Young, like just everybody does that. Steve, I appreciate you. See, but Sam, you know this too. A highlight film shows highlights. Notice <laughs> I did not put on the film my second year against Tampa Bay when I was in a uh, iron cast skillet getting fried, <laughs> getting steered like a like a filet mignon on butter. I only put the highlights on there, man. <laughs> hey, and, and, and I want to let you go. I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to ask one more question, and maybe yeah. I can do this after the recording, because I want to talk about the RPO and some of these NFL rules. Yeah. I, I, your face just changed. Your face, your whole expressions yeah. just changed. We talk about NFL. So people don't know if you watch football, the RPO is something called a run pass option. And so quarterbacks have the option, really offenses have the option of either running the ball or passing the ball. But there are rules in place, supposedly, where offensive linemen can only go a certain yardage downfield. And I think in, in the NFL, it's, it's, it's two yards. If I'm not one. mistaken, one yard. College, they give, them, they give them about five. No, three. Oh, it's wow. Be three. Okay. 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 So, so (laughs) I love the game of football and football has rules in it. Like as a cornerback, you can't hold a receiver. Mm -hmm. Like there's rules. Well, the run pass option, particularly in college is breaking the rules. And what I mean is this is the quarterback, a run pass option means, means this, that the offensive linemen do not know if it's a run or a pass. So if it turns into a pass, it's the quarterback's job to pass the ball before the linemen are more than three yards downfield. Why do I care? Number one, because it's the rules. Number two, as a defensive players, you have run pass keys. 
So as a NFL safety, as a high school safety, as a college safety, a part of diagnosing a play is you read the weak side tackle. If he's off the ball, it's a pass. If he's going through the line of scrimmage, it's a run. Well, with RPO now in college, there are linemen sometimes who are at the level of the receivers catching a slant pass. And most fans are like, man, this offense is incredible. How does the defense not know? Because it's cheating. When my son was being recruited, and I'm not going to name the name of the school, I'm sitting with a famous head coach who offered my son a scholarship, and I'm asking him about the RPO, and he starts laughing. And he said, Derwin, I cannot tell you how many times our linemen were seven yards downfield and we scored touchdowns. And he goes, in the college game now, what it is is you just want to score more points than the other team because we're pretty much all breaking the rules. So I want the integrity of the game. I want the integrity of the game to be a beautiful game, not a cheating game. So so like what if receivers could uh, or, or what if defensive backs could all of a sudden hold receivers eight yards downfield and the flag's not thrown? It messes up the game. So that's why I don't like the RPO. And on a side note, Brett Favre was running the RPO in the 90s, mm. except for they didn't call it that. Basically, what he did is he saw a quarterback nine yards off, and it was supposed to be like a, 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 a zone stretch. He would just tuck the ball, boom, and just fire it. Mm. You know, and then so in college and in the pros, it's on the quarterback to get rid of the ball before the lineman sheet. So, yeah, I point out RPO all the time on TV. I'm on a one man crusade, Sam. Destroy <laughs> the RPO. Run it within the rules. And, and, I, and I'll join you on that crusade. I think in the NFL, it's easier to make that change because they have rules committees and you could come and say, all right, we need to get this. I mean, they, they started implementing offensive pass interference, defense pass interference, reviewable, and then kind of taking it out. But the, at the college level, I feel like I feel like it's like anything goes. And I, and I hate it because, especially as a defensive player, same thing. I'm key. I'm outside linebacker. I'm key in the tackle. And I'm, it looks like a run. Now it's a pass. looks like it's a pass. Now it's a run. It's like it, it, it almost keeps you from being able to play the game that, the way it's supposed to be played. Yeah, so um, a defensive coordinator uh, from a top 15 team whom I will not name, I talked to him and I asked him, I'm like, why do you run a three-man front? And he says, we run a three-man front because of the RPO. He, he goes, it's, it's literally cheating. So what we do with a three-man front is – we tell our backers to play pass first. And he, and he goes, in college, what we're hoping for is there are three or four drives per game that, that they have a false start, that they throw a bad pass, that they fumble, they have a misread. He goes, basically, if you play traditional defense, they're going to beat you on the RPO because if you read keys the way you're taught to read keys, you can't because a lineman six yards downfield is a run. So the backer flies up, the safety flies up, and all of a sudden you have a slant behind you. And so now what's happened is defenses have to play on their heels. And that's why you see less sacks. That's why you see less interceptions. And so it's, it's turned the game into something that's not football. And so um, one of the one things I'll say, and you may need to make this a, another episode, like, right? <laughs> so the one thing that I will say is I love the new breed of athlete. So, for example, 
uh, my son in high school, six one and some change, two ten, ran a four five, thirty six inch vert, four point oh one shuttle, ten and a quarter hands. So as a senior in high school, athletically, he blew me off the charts. It, it, it wasn't even close. He was phenomenal. Just, can I, can I, do you remember your stat, your uh, measurements? Like in high school or the pros? Yeah. Like as you were going to the pros, so I guess it would be a little the, bit different. Yeah. Yeah. So just for, pros, comparison, for comparison. Yeah. So so senior year in high, high school, that's what he was. Me going into the pros, I was 5'10 and three quarters. 192. I ran a 455 30-inch vertical leap. My shuttle was a 386. So I was stronger because I was older, but athletically, he was so much more dyna dynamic. But he started training earlier. His nutrition was better. So what I see now is incredible athletes. Man, they are beautiful. But what I don't see, because of tempo, is I don't see the attention to detail. I don't see the elaborate schemes of football anymore. What I see now is four or five plays a game. You run them really fast. You get the defense tired. You got the RPO, so they have to sit on their heels. If I played in today's football, the position that I would want to play is boundary corner. Why is that? Because all you have to do is play press, and you're going to get a backdoor fade, you're going to get a go and maybe a slant. There is no post corners. There's no dig routes. There's none of that stuff. I would I would learn how to play press and I would use the corner. I would use the sideline as my friend because you're not going to get an elaborate pass tree. And so when these guys get to the NFL, there's so much of the basic things that they have to learn. And think about, 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 about this. Other than Deshaun Watson – what pure zone read quarterback is flourishing in the NFL? I mean, there aren't there aren't any. <laughs> so, so the you know I can point to Cam Newton in his heyday, but but they basically modified the offense for him. For and, him, but you even as. By the way, Cam Newton is the most impressive human specimen I've ever seen. My goodness. Man, he made me insecure when I saw him. When did you see him? Oh, this was his rookie year. I was doing a Steve Smith camp, and I looked at this man. I said, so if Greek mythology was true, this is what a demigod would look like. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And I'm like, how this man a quarterback? So – so, but even him, his body took a toll. You can't run an NFL quarterback that way, right? And so what I'm saying is the zone read tempo stuff is good for college in the sense that, you know, you know how to win and stuff, but I'm not sure if it's good for the game long-term. That's why you see so many college quarterbacks thriving and, and flourishing. They get to the NFL, it doesn't translate. Yeah, so, so like I'm a... I'm a huge fan of Tua. Uh, in the words of Rick Ross, Tua Tagliavoa, <laughs> Alabama. Like I'm a, like I love his story. Like I'm a huge fan of his, but I'm not quite sure if he's going to be able to make the leap to being a traditional pro-style quarterback with various reads. The zone read gives you one read. You know, the RPO gives you one read. 
And in the NFL, man, these defensive coordinators, and then you got defensive ends that run four or five, so they can squeeze down on the run and then catch you outside, right? So um, I'm not saying don't win. I'm just saying that there's an integrity and a beauty of the game. And yes, the game evolves and develops, but I'm not sure lineman six yards downfield on a pass is called evolved. I think that's called cheating. Yeah, we had a coordinator during my time in, in the NFL who who noticed these trends. And he's a very detail-oriented guy, Vic Fangio. He's the head oh, coach of the – Vic. Love Vic, I right? for Vic. Where, where, in, in Indy? No, with the Panthers. Oh, so I played for Vic four years. And what was he – was he coaching outside backers then? No, he was uh, the defensive coordinator for um, the Panthers. His mentor, Dom Capers, was the head coach. Hmm. And so what what Fangio was known for then, I don't know if he was known for it with the Bears, is the zone blitz stuff yep. that Dom Capers got from Dick LeBeau and Pittsburgh and all this stuff. Yeah, replacement zones, replacement zones. Yeah. Yeah, so, and so, and that's what had us thrive. But Vic, it's almost like, it's, it's like imagine he were in these conversations because he has these same kind of conversations. So what he would do, he understood that quarterbacks we're reading one player in the RPO, usually oftentimes the inside linebacker. If he goes for the run, you pass it, pass it behind him. If he stays for the pass, you let it go. And so Vic would actually hold the inside linebacker and have usually the safety or different position play the run. Mm-hmm. And so quarterbacks would be stuck. They'd be trapped. He'd also teach the outside backers to, you know, uh, initially – in, in general, outside backers are supposed to be aggressive, get to the quarterback, go, set the edge. He would teach us off in, in certain sets to bounce a little bit, right, to, to wait, which is totally counterintuitive, but it was the only way to play the zone read, the only way to play the RPO. We would wait. We would bounce. It, it, he knew that the rules weren't going to change, so he yeah. would change our responsibilities based upon those offenses. Yeah, which – and you're pointing to something that's super important that I think uh, if if they're athletes listening, former NFL players, what, whatever, our level of strategic intelligence is not just limited to football. Hmm. That's why you and your brother, by the way, like I've never met, man, I like I, I feel like y'all cousins. Like, man, I am so <laughs> proud of y'all. The level of your intellect how you um, honor each other, what you bring to the table is like you can be a hard-nosed football player and an intellect with a good heart. Hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? And, and so football players, there's a strategic intelligence that has helped me so much. Like I would be in class and, you know, I'm answering questions at a rate so fast and my professors would go, how do you do this? I said, well, well, when you got to cover Jerry Rice and make adjustments and you playing against Dan Marino, Barry Sanders, Emmett Smith, Jim Kelly, Andre Reed, um, like you got to make adjustments fast. But if I don't, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so that same mentality has transcended the football field to help me as a husband, as a father, as a dad. You, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I teach our staff is a principle called sudden change. In high school, D.W. Rutledge at Converse Judson, he, he, he said, look, on defense, there's going to be times where it's a long drive. We stop the other team and our offense is going to turn the ball over. 
We're not going to complain. We're all going to get excited and say sudden change because adversity is opportunity. So when COVID hit, I told our staff, and I've, I've been saying this for years, sudden change. Adversity is opportunity. And man, this year has been the most productive year in the history of Transformation Church, individually in our staff, uh, corporately as a church, sudden change. Opportun adversity is opportunity. Sudden change, right? So what I'm saying is, Football intellect transcends the football field. And so for the guys that are listening, you're not just a dumb football player. Your best days are not in your 20s, man. Your best days are not like people go, you missed the NFL. I'm like, no, I'm having too much fun. Like, like, man, I rode off on my white horse, bro. Like, like I'm letting the young bulls do, do that. I'm good. And so it's important that we don't, lose ourselves in a game that was meant to be temporary, but the lessons we learned can be lifelong. That's phenomenal. And we um, got that from the RPO. <laughs> we got all that from the RPO. And it's crazy too, because you're saying this and it, like, I'm, it, you're preaching to me because I just, I'm, I just got out. I'm 32 years old. I played nine years. This, this last season was the first season since I've been, I started playing maybe sixth grade or so or so. So since I've been 13 that I haven't played football and I thought I was going to be miserable yet. This is the most fun I've had in years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, and, and, and let me encourage you with this too, right? Is because of your preparation, because of your walk with the Lord, you are definitely ahead of the game. And I want to encourage you that, that when that tension does come, don't try to get busy out of it. Mm. Sit back and reflect because God's going to bring up some things that he's going to need to heal in you for your marriage, for your ministry, for your calling. And what we've been taught as football players is, man, you just work through it, right? Well, the work, the way you work through what he's going to reveal is you sit there with him and let him bring those things up, give them to him, let him work them, massage them, redistribute them, redemptively in your life because those moments are going to come with us like oh wow like yeah like I'm not really playing anymore like what do I do now like how do I get along with my wife that I'm here all the time you know so but man you 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 are you are doing phenomenal and are an example right and you know taking taking care of your mental because a lot of times football keeps us so busy that for guys who do have brain health issues, um, football kept them busy, man, you know? And so then when they didn't have nothing to do, it was like, what am I gonna do with all these thoughts, these emotions, you know? Mm. And that's what I wanna see guys do is, like video games and stuff is fun, man, but read books, learn about yourself, discover yourself. And this game takes a toll on, on us. Like my back is jacked up. Mm -hmm. um, I have to work through bouts of depression. Um, and so it's, you know, it's important to take care of yourself holistically, but football is such a, a great trampoline to spring you into the rest of life. Mm. That's amazing. Well, I appreciate you, man. I mean, I could talk All to you right. for hours and I can't wait to talk to you again whenever I see you. Uh, Dr. Gray, I appreciate you, brother. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks. Y'all, that was probably my 
favorite episode thus far, just listening to so many of the nuggets that Dr. Derwin Gray dropped. Just a few notes. He talked about how love costs you something. He also talked about the history of police and relationships with, with Black people. He talks so much about leveraging our lives on behalf of others and, and how little things lead to the big things and how preparation has to meet opportunity. I can't believe, number one, this, he, was a, he talked about being a compulsive stutterer, yet just the way he spoke to me, that was phenomenal. And so please, please, please go check out The Good Life, his book that just came out. It's below in the link. Also, for those who are new here, you want to learn more about me, check out my book as well. Let the world see you. It's in the link below as well. Thank you all so much for joining us for another episode of the Athletes for Justice podcast and for joining us on this journey of justice together.